we make of it. Our love is what we make of it. Our love is what we make of it. Our love is what we make of it. Sex for smart people. That means you. Hello and welcome to Sex for Smart People. Oh, hi. Today we are joined by Antonia Levy, who is an all-around amazing, amazing, wise human, but also a scholar of the polyamory movements in the United States and also in Germany. She's from Germany, and she is rad. And so we will interview Antonia, we'll address some listener questions, and then we will do our quickie section where we rant about something or endorse something. Yeah, it's a pretty great episode. I think you're going to want to stick around for this one. Um, you can also, you know, find us on the internet and on the f- social networks such as Facebook and Twitters. <laughs> and we have a phone number that you can find on our website, which is sexforsmartpeople.com. You can also email us there and submit questions anonymously. We are like all over the goddamn web, guys. <laughs> Indeed. I believe, I believe you can love find us. We love being in conversation with you. We love hearing from you. Please let us know where you disagree with us, where you have thoughts. Submit questions that you'd like us to address at any time. Yeah, you are smart. Send us things. To win. Hello and welcome to Sex for Smart People. I'm Stephanie and my preferred pronouns are she or they. I'm Dave and my preferred pronoun is he. Hey, and I'm Antonia and my preferred pronoun is she. Antonia. 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 I'm so thrilled that you are with us today. Thank you for having me. Oh my God. And we just shared a dinner and we are drinking wine (laughs) and it is a lovely night. And we will kick things off officially the way we always do. And Antonia, what is your relationship to relationships? Well, it's complicated, (laughs) but it is also. beautiful and has evolved over time. Um, One thing I was thinking about when you asked me this question is that um, I see relationships on a continuum. So I have learned over these years being polyamorous that I can see the gray between having lovers, Mm -hmm. having partners, having friends, and then there's a lot of in between. Mm -hmm. So um, that came to my mind first when I when I heard that question. Mm-hmm. And that centers in a lot of the research that you're doing currently. Yes, as Can well. Can you talk a um, about that? Yes, sure. Um, I am writing currently my dissertation, or I'm pretending to, and hope to finish soon. It is um, a study comparing the polyamory movement in the U.S. and Germany. So I'm interested in the activism that um, surrounds polyamory. Um, I'm looking at uh, what people put efforts in to, you know, changing politics, changing public opinions, changing uh, the way polyamory is portrayed in the media uh, on both sides of the ocean. And so interviewing these activists and interviewing these people that are so passionate about this topic has also taught me a lot about relationships, Mm -hmm. how in different ways people live um, in polyamory, in open relationships, in open marriages, whatever word they want to give it, and how they felt at some point in their lives that they want to really change the landscape of relationships in their countries on either side. And this has been a beautiful endeavor. 
and I've made some interesting discoveries along the way. One thing I'm doing is I'm comparing these two um, groups, these two countries, these two uh, social movements maybe. And I started out by thinking that um, I would find much more activism in Germany because coming from there, I know that the attitude towards intimacy and uh, the diversity of sexual relationships is, is more open, at least in public, right? And so I thought I would find a thriving um, polyamorous po uh, polit political community there, but I didn't. On the contrary, I got a lot of responses where people said in support groups when I brought it up, oh, that's personal, not political. Mm. What was really astonishing. Um, also knowing the history of um, social movements, especially identity movements where you know, the, it's personal, not political, was something that came up in the, in the 60s and 70s. And then mm. people fought about feminists as well, right? Saying this is not just personal, it's political. So mm. I, I felt like I'm going back in time and having to explain this again. But uh, looking here in the, in the US where you have a polyamory media association and you have several thriving activist groups. There is a polyamory leadership um, network um, so I had to put my hypothesis on its head when it came to that. And um, the way I'm looking at it right now is that maybe because in Germany, people don't feel as restricted um, expressing mm -hmm. their different sexual identities. They don't feel the need so much to actually put mm. political activism into that arena. Hmm. Hmm. So, so actually being... That's very interesting. Okay, that, that has interesting connotations that come, that sort of quickly spiral outward from that. So because there's not so much pressure to conform to a norm, there's less resistance against that norm? I also want to say there is less um, repression, and I don't want to put that in a total, um, in its extreme. Sure. And, but... Uh, as in stigma surrounding mm -hmm. when your your sexual identity and also not as many consequences in your non-personal life. For example, there are some people here in the activist community in the US. Um, I don't know their real name. They go by a pseudonym mm -hmm. because they feel that uh, if they would come out with, if no, if they if it would come out in their professional world that they are poly and even activists, mm. it would, you know, lead to repercussions that they don't want to face. Mm -hmm. I've never experienced that in Germany. Huh. Mm. So I, I think there is a there is a level here that restricts people in the way they ex they express. They are able to express their sexual identities that leads them to say this needs to change. Mm. We draw broad European strokes here and just just ca cast off huge ideas. But I feel like when we were in Prague, Stephanie, mm -hmm. that you and I found that on the whole, people were politically far more liberal than mm -hmm. people here, and mm -hmm. personally far more conservative. That it sort of s on, uh, widely had them swapped. That people say, "Well, I like to behave in this very formed way, but anyone can do whatever they want." And here, I feel like there's a little bit of a reverse of that, where people say, there is this norm, and I can break it because I'm a good person, or I have these politics that help me deal with that. And that connects to, is the personal connected to the yeah. political? Yes, yes. 
two two things about that mm -hmm. one um, you say prague mm -hmm. and um there's this interesting phenomenon that i haven't really understood yet mm -hmm. but if you look at the sexual politics in former eastern europe and exclude east germany because we, were, we became part of germany mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i say we because i'm from east germany <laughs> but um we became part of germany at large so we're not really an eastern european country any longer but all the rest if you look at their sexual policies, it's actually pretty repressive. And they are sometimes even going the opposite way, where you look at Russia, right? Yeah. Where they're trying to pass laws that law um, outlaw um, gay marriage and all these things. So I wonder if part of that might be what you've seen in Prague. But to be honest, I'm not sure how in Czech Republic this all plays out. I, I haven't um, looked at that yet. Another thing is that... I'm grappling actually with this in my dissertation to how to explain um, the situation here where individualism mm -hmm. plays such a big role mm -hmm. in personal as well as in, you know, life in society at large. How to, first of all, grasp that, put it in words and then relate it to my topic, how that plays in where people feel so strongly about their individual expression of all kinds of things. Also, you know, like I'm, I'm a, you know, I want to do whatever I want, and no one should restrict me. And mm -hmm. um, what leads to all kinds of beautiful expressions of creativity. Sure. And then I'm looking at you, uh, Stephanie, <laughs> to less solidarity in in, in general between mm. people or groups. You know, so yeah, this is definitely an interesting question of mm. how that relates to expressions of sexual identity here. Mm. you know and how that plays out in a public sphere yeah sure. um of course feel free to deflect anything but i'm curious what led you to a particular fascination with this work or how do these ideas manifest with you personally um it's a long story i don't know if you want to hear it but um i actually started out my research um with uh, focusing on sex workers rights activism I was um, very fascinated um, by encountering groups of sex workers who, um, you know, came out and said, we need more rights. Mm -hmm. And that was early in my graduate student career that I encountered, I was interested in social movements and I encountered that particular social movement, what wasn't really a movement at the time. And um, I started working on that and actually I have co-edited a book on that as well mm. what's on what? sex work it's called um sex work matters cool and it was a follow-up on a conference that we a friend and i organized here in new york city and <clears throat> from that i developed um an interest into other sexual rights movements and in realized that nothing had been written so far about the polyamory movement mm. and so that's how you know, Step I ended up, up there, of yeah. course, and I don't know if you kind of asking about that as well, is that I am personally polyamorous. So mm -hmm. there was um, an interest from a personal interest as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did that predate the research or did the research sort of lead you into that world? It predated the research. Okay. Um, I didn't necessarily identify as polyamorous, but I definitely lived in polyamorous relationships. I 
learned more about it while doing my research was really interesting mm. and then I was like hi huh, this is who I am <laughs> I have a label that I can put on myself <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, do you, what do you think about this label of polyamory I have a I have a sort of contentious relationship with mm-hmm. it I find it useful sometimes as a shorthand but also to me the whole point of Cre- I mean, I, I'm very into creating my own vocabulary right. around mm-hmm. every connection. And so it, it's nice to have sort of an organizing principle and a useful label. But I, I know people who are in, who, who operate relationally similarly to me, who don't use that term right. at mm-hmm. all. Since mm-hmm. part of it is trying to, since part of it is relationship anarchy, you're trying to eschew labels, right? Yeah. It's like, it's hard to then say, well, I fall in, uh, yeah. Yeah, how do you feel about the term polyamory that you embrace in research and Right, I, I feel similar to you um, that I use it as a shorthand and it's often in, in certain circles it's just the easiest way to mm-hmm. identify. Then everyone kind of knows what, you know, who you are. <laughs> uh-huh. Not really, but <laughs> at least how you live. Uh, you know how to judge you immediately. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that leads me, I'm, I'm, my, my perception of that word is really tainted by my research, I must say, because... I I ask that all the time when I interview activists of how mm-hmm. they think about that term. That versus monogamish or... Or open relationship yeah. or open marriage or, you know, there are all kinds of words that came up. Um, and I actually interviewed one or two people who reject the label mm-hmm. because it has become so restrictive. Mm-hmm. And also they felt, they, you know, connected to queer activism and they felt it had... Be- for them, it had become a very white middle class mm-hmm. identity mm-hmm. that actively sometimes excludes people of other mm-hmm. races, especially class. They mm-hmm. felt it is very classist. So um, that was an interesting discovery for me because when I started out, it was this revolutionary, you know, identity and word. Mm-hmm. And over time, I realized wow, you know, there is some critical attitudes to that and um, there's some truth to that too. Mm-hmm. You know, that some of the community is not very diverse and there is no no active outreach to other communities or no real opening to include mm. other people. There's an essay online that has blown and continues to absolutely blow my mind called The Trouble with Polynormativity. Oh, I love that. Yes. Oh my god. It's, it's like beautiful. it's it's like it grabs your brain stem and squeezes it so you can't do it. <laughs> where it talks about the problem where, where polynormativity is. It starts with a couple who are young and white and wealthy and cute. And that that or attractive. Mm-hmm. And that that's polyamory. And so it's unthreatening because we've manifested it in the least threatening image of it we possibly can. Yeah, I think well, I see both sides of that. I mean, I think on the one hand, in, in alternatives to monogamy being more widely discussed, at least, if not more widely accepted in mainstream culture, I think that like the watered down, easy to swallow version of like pretty otherwise heteronormative people mm-hmm. is is could be a small step forward to more acceptance, but I also really see how that's that's really damaging and shutting out other voices. And I feel like under the there is one term that I wholeheartedly embrace, and that's queer. As mm-hmm. queer activism is mm-hmm. uh, hugely necessarily inclusive. Yeah, um, I actually the more I do this research, the more actually I I got away from this 
focusing solely on polyamory as an identity Mm -hmm. and people who self-identify that way by looking at it a little broader non-monogamous relationships as well as family formations Mm -hmm. right because a lot of the activism is about family Mm -hmm. being able to create families that go beyond the mom dad and the kids um and there is actually a fascinating part of my research in Germany where I said there is not that much activism, but it comes actually from the other side that here you're trying to fight politics, right? And there is an initiative by the Green Party in Germany to open up family law to include two, what they call two non-biological or they call it social parents. So that you can, each child could have four parents. Hmm. Um, so they want to open family law to that so you actually formally could assign more people than the biological parents or adoptive parents to a child so they have more rights and responsibilities cool. for that officially. Not just, you know, you can create family obviously informally that way, but sure. uh-huh. actually it's to be it's recognized in that by way the state, really yes. And so I, I, that was fascinating for me to see because... I, I interviewed some of the people who were working on this kind of what they call right now the white paper. It's not law yet. They mm-hmm. want to just introduce it soon. Um, and I asked them, I was like, this is so fascinating because I work on polyamory and I know that some of the people who live that way would embrace this wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Did you talk to any of them? And did they have any you know, input on this? And they said, no, we never mm-hmm. talked to any polyamorous person. I was like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> so you're, you're creating something here that will really ease their life. And you haven't even, huh. you know, this hasn't even been part of the whole process. Uh, so, Diana Adams says that yes. um, the, it's really been proven that stability is what's important for for kids, not the, not the exact form exactly. of the and family. Exactly. And what I'm also trying to get at with, with that comment is what we had just talked about, you know, how... Um, focusing on on white and cute couples Mm -hmm. you know and then maybe adding one person or something Mm -hmm. um i think what what there is missing there too is that we do have family formation in all kinds of um, communities that do not adhere to this stereotype Mm -hmm. of mom dad and the kids what we always see as this traditional idea Mm -hmm. you know there are like these large family groups in non-white communities that are very stable for kids and it has nothing to do with marriage. Or it, who's often, having sex with whom. Exactly. Right. Often not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that when, you know, law could also follow up on that of, you know, granting benefits, for example, to people who are just taking care of kids. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually mm-hmm. uh, that c- what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. I think what, what, where benefits should go. Mm-hmm. It's kids. And then whoever takes care of them when you mm. think of families. Hmm. So now on to listener questions. And in first with the crowdsource question. Yeah! We should sing the theme song. The, all of it together? Of course. Crowdsource question! Yeah! <laughs> so this If you one... have other suggestions for a theme song, by the way, keep them to yourselves. Uh? This one is perfect. <laughs> um... So this crowdsource question is, I'm a straight guy, 27 years old, and I'm crazy about my girlfriend of two years. We have awesome chemistry, and for the most part, the sex is great. But she gets really uncomfortable when I go down on her, like she doesn't trust that I'm having fun, which I totally am. How can I help her open up to it? And 
Oh my goodness, thank you so much to all of you who contributed. We're gonna share four amazing responses and all the other responses are informing what we're gonna talk about. But Dave, would you please read response number one? Sure. Ain't nothing sexier than communication. Talk about it. This can actually seem counterintuitive. Mass media tries to sell us straight guys, a version of masculinity that oftentimes tries to link sexy with assertive or even overpowering. So asking questions can seem like a buzzkill. But the big secret that Hollywood doesn't know how to tell us is that once you've opened up a real dialogue beforehand, sexy times are always even sexier after. Mm -hmm. Find a safe, spacious, private moment, perhaps a dinner you cooked her at your place, and simply ask her about her experience. Just bring up the subject, and then do as much listening as you can. Maybe you'll get around to sharing a little of your side of the story, or maybe you'll just answer with more questions so she really feels heard, and that'll be that. Keep checking in with yourself as the conversation unfolds, at the table, and in bed, to make sure you're not taking over, and she feels empowered, respected, and heard. It takes bravery to really listen. That's a version of masculinity that'll really get things steamy. Hmm. And this next response I happen to know is the partner of the first responder. So it's kind of um, piggybacking on that response. Oh, intriguing. A second voice to talk about it. Assuming what's happening for your partner is risky business. She may be enjoying, but worried about you. She may not be enjoying it. She may be wishing it were slightly different. She may be thinking something completely different. By talking about it, hopefully she'll feel able to communicate what she enjoys and what she wants and her boundaries around what she doesn't want. You can do your best to really listen to her and hear what she's saying. Then hopefully you can do the same. Let her know that you enjoy it and want to please her. Maybe there's something that you can change to make it better for both of you. I'd start with an open-hearted, open-minded conversation. Try not to come in with any expectations about what's happening for her. Hmm. 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 Response three, uh, which has several parts. I've totally found myself in similar situations. Have you asked her how she feels about you going down on her? That seems like the first step. To talk about it. Yes? It seems to me like there could be a number of very different reasons why she doesn't seem into it, and I'm going to write about two. Number one. For some women, maybe a lot of women, the experience of having someone go down on them can make them feel vulnerable or exposed. You are right there, looking at her vulva, not to mention smelling and tasting it, which might be a part of her body that she feels unfamiliar with, or even feels, looks, smells wrong or bad. I suspect Stephanie and Dave will have more ideas about how to approach this, if it is in fact how your partner feels. My only advice, if you get the sense that this is what is going on for your partner, is not to trivialize the intensity of the experience of oral sex for her, but to approach it as a kind of an advantage. Going down on her can be a really intimate, connected experience where she has the opportunity to experience pleasure as a way to move through some of the feelings of shame about her body that she might carry. I know it's functioned that way for me. Two, some people just aren't that into oral sex. I like the language that Dan Savage uses here, that some people are squigged out by it. By this, I understand him as meaning that a person isn't exactly opposed to the act, it just kind of makes them feel weird. Maybe it's not something that they're familiar with, or it's just not their thing. Sometimes people get past those icky feelings, and sometimes they don't. One of my current lovers is totally squigged out by oral sex, giving or receiving, and so we've never done it. At first, I was really disappointed by this, and made that clearly known to him. I found, though, that with this act off the table, he and I have explored a greater variety of ways of getting each other off, which I've really enjoyed, and have made sure he knows that I feel really satisfied with the sex we have, and that it doesn't ever need to include oral sex. Every once in a while, I do mention in passing how hot it would be for me if he would kiss, if we would kiss each other everywhere, and recently he started to talk about wanting that too. It seems like the gentle reinforcement of how sexy I think oral sex is, 
without any pressure that I need to do it, is making the idea slowly more appealing. Maybe this is an approach you could take with your girlfriend, too. Nice. Man, our listeners are the sexiest. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, The last response is from Twana Hines, who was our guest on episode six. Um, And she actually responded to this question in her column in Metro New York, which is cool. So it's a little bit long, but it's awesome because it's wisdom from the awesome Twana Hines. Yeah. Um, She says, considering vaginal penetration is less likely to produce orgasms in women than clitoral stimulation, it is especially unfortunate that straight partners often prioritize it. I gather you already understand how important it is to pay attention to more than one orifice for oh-so-amazing sexual pleasures. It sounds like you already understand that, and you want to reassure your girlfriend that going downtown is a favorite on your sexual and your shared sexual menu of choices. It is not a coincidence that the word intercourse describes both sexual activity and interpersonal communication. You mentioned she gets really uncomfortable, and it's like she doesn't trust that you are having fun. That sounds very nonverbal. It may be time for the two of you to have a talk. Woo! Interjection from Stephanie. I said the theme here. <laughs> Back into Tuana's response. Um, While speech is certainly not required to communicate every sexual desire, in this situation it could help provide a bit more clarity for, for you. Here's my advice for puckering up for some real talk about eating your lover. Put her at ease. Be sure to explain to your girlfriend exactly why you enjoy going down on her, to reassure her that you're a bona fide downtown dining enthusiast. And here are some sample phrases to kickstart the conversation. I really love the way you taste because blank, or I want to know if I'm pleasing you because blank. Next is up your game. Your girlfriend is only 50% of your relationship's equation. If you've not yet explicitly asked her about your skills, how can we be 100% sure that she likes oral sex and just isn't comfortable with the way you're doing it? Don't freak out on me. I truly believe you are a champion, my little carpet-munching soldier. I'm just saying education is a lifelong process and one should never stop learning. A while back, my column helped a dude tell his lady how to go, how to do better going down to enjoy similar tips below to up your game in the clit olympics and then dig deeper we all have egos right exposing our genitals to our lovers can sometimes leave us feeling well exposed and vulnerable if you've already been together for two years that tells me you're a couple with some staying power to make this relationship even more enjoyable plunge deeper into sexual intimacy communicate about your needs and desires and explore sex together good luck and keep me posted amazing dude our listeners are the sexiest intriguing yes there does so, seem to be a theme. There does seem to be a theme. You should to talk, talk to, to each, each other, other about things. things. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, handily, a part of our mission statement. Are you serious? <laughs> That's great. Um, I feel like there's so much good ground covered. I don't have too much to add there. Do you um, want to try to synthesize or, or build on what was just said? I just want to emphasize something that only one of them really um, said in the last one said in detail. That is what I also, it's actually one of my experiences that once a man just really told me what he likes about going down on me. He really just put it in like almost passionate words and that was all I needed. Mm -hmm. So I think the last um, response mentioned that and I, I just want to emphasize that. Uh-huh. that you should talk about it and you should have her explain things, but you might want to do that too, yes. Yeah, yeah. if you like it, don't be afraid to say so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I think um, I, there was just such great 
ground covered in those responses. Mm-hmm. Um, I want a, a, a resource that I love. Like if you're, so say, say that, what if they have talked about it? Mm-hmm. What if they have talked about it? She's not sure or she's expressed what she likes and they're trying and they're working on stuff. What do they do then? Mm-hmm. I think um, this book called She Comes First, A Thinking Man's Guide to Pleasuring a Woman by Ian Kerner is, uh, is pretty excellent. It's a little bit like trying to be cute in an academic way. So like the tone of it isn't my favorite, but I, I think that the content <laughs> is really awesome. Wait, how does that manifest? Oh, he just like quotes Aristotle where it's not no. at all relevant. It's really like he quotes Strunk and White. The ground. He's like, you want to be a cu- cunning linguist, and like you should, you know, like the elements of style, Strunk and White. And it's like, no, no. you're just. Being... Was it Aristotle who said, "Get your tongue in my pussy"? I yeah. think it was. <laughs> There's a little bit of that, and it's kind of annoying. But with that caveat, I do still think that the book is excellent, and. Um, he emphasizes three principles that go along. This is a little bit repeating what was just said, but a lot of people write in with questions similar to this. And yeah. so I want to re-emphasize three things that, that Ian Kerner emphasizes that also have come up in these responses that things to, so like, especially if you've already talked about it and heard from her about what's working, and what's not mm-hmm. like, as you said, Antonio, these, these assurances like, um, uh, saying specifically what you love about her taste and about her smell. I know that, that for a lot of women and also for me, admittedly, for a long while, like even when I was free of other kinds of shame and, and, and really celebratory about my sexuality, it's been a long journey to not consider my vulva as kind of like gross or dirty. And that's that's kind of... Or something at that's odds somewhat, with yeah, my, that, the rest of my philosophy, but it's still lingered right. with me. And even if you don't think it might be gross, but is that it's something that someone could enjoy? You yeah. know, that's like another step. That's the thing, and that's the, the next thing that he says is, is right. saying that um, emphasize how much it's giving, it, it, if, if this is true for you especially, that it's giving you as, at least as much pleasure as it's giving her. Mm-hmm. That's something with, I think, a lot of people's caretaking impulses, again, including mine, that that can be hard to trust sometimes. And then the last thing that he says is um, that, just to emphasize that we have all the time in the world, and then again, mm. it doesn't, that to be, as we talked about in another episode, to be pleasure-oriented rather than orgasm-focused can be a really powerful thing. And I, I just... Um, Man, solidarity to all the women who are on this journey. It's been a long journey for me to. Well, can I? I think this might be a this might be a tricky question. Yeah. Um, which is that? So, say like homeboy explains all of this. I love your taste for these reasons. I want to do this for these reasons. I'm having as much fun as you, and she's not. She just doesn't not that into it. And what? Uh-huh. How do? How are they to know whether that's because she has fully embraced it and has rejected it, or if there's these lingering social things that are tell that that a block that she can't get past because society has told her for all her life that her vulva is weird. I think you have to be where you are and you can't know. And I think that that's okay. Yeah. I think if you're having the conversation and that I, I always struggle with like how personal to get here. Um, people, just, the, the people have said they want to hear from us. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, I'm going to go there. I, for a very long time thought that I just wasn't into oral sex. Mm-hmm. And for me, it had to do with hangups that are connected with all three of these things that we've just talked about. Mm-hmm. And I, I also felt like it just wasn't intimate. Like I missed a partner's face. It's like, very true. But I've clearly been ha- I mean, like, and then when I, I've been having kind of like an awakening, and and I feel like I just I had no idea how intimate it could be, mm-hmm. and um, 
this had to do with this particular connection and a particular moment in in my life and and so that's um that's been radically awesome but also I do trust that there are people out there for whom that's not the case it's not based on hang-ups it's not um uh, it is really just not your thing because everybody mm-hmm. has their thing and things that are not their thing. So sorry, that's too much information. When when do you trust that you have that you have broken down all possible blocks and there's just something you're not into? I think you could just go back to one of your responses where I forget who said it, but I think it was a she who said um, at one point we just agreed or she. Uh, decided that okay this will not be part of our mm-hmm. relationship yeah and then they enjoyed their sex in other ways and explored actually new ways and suddenly mm. there's this opening where the partner becomes open to exploring that part as well because mm. there is trust that builds and sometimes letting something go Mm-hmm. and accepting that it might not be part of it mm-hmm. actually opens up a space where it can come back. Mm-hmm. I think that... And that I think not only that if it doesn't come back, that's also okay. It has to be genuine, though. Right. You really have to... Um, in all of this, what we just talked about, if you, if you can't come across it as genuinely enjoying something, this will not work. Mm-hmm. You you cannot like make it better than it than it is. Mm. Something that somebody said in response to a former previous crowdsource question, which was asking about frequency of sex, was don't fake it. Mm-hmm. Don't do it to fake it. Oh, absolutely. I think that that's, that's a wise advice here, too. Yeah. Sex is like a souffle. It collapses under pressure or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's very well put. Oh, man. <laughs> um, cool. Next question? Sure. Yes. Sounds good. I'm lesbian, and my amazing wife and I have been married for almost seven years. We're crazy about each other, the sex is amazing, and we only get better in every way as the years go by. I don't question our commitment to each other at all. So there's no problem there. The problem is that I work in marketing, and recently a new person was hired to join the core team. This new person happens to be my wife's ex-girlfriend. They were together for longer than we've been married, but they broke it off because my wife wanted to have kids someday, and this woman did not. My wife and her ex are still in touch occasionally, but they are no longer close. This woman has not wronged me at all, but still I'm consumed with jealousy when I think of her, and it is horrible having to work closely with her every single day. I know that any and all issues are in my own head, but still they feel real and powerful to me. What can I do to just view this woman as a normal person and coworker, and not let my irrational feelings of jealousy get in the way? Hmm. I can dive in. And this is so complex, and I have so much compassion for this person. Um, I think that jealousy can feel like a real overwhelming, crazy thing. And I think that it's important to unpack it and say, what's at the root of it? What are what are the pieces of this jealousy? To not just write it off as un- like all-consuming jealousy. Is what it's at the root of your feeling, is it a fear of loss of your wife? And then you can sit with how rational and realistic is that? Are there things you need to talk about with your wife? You could, um, is it rooted in something that you're not getting some affirmation or assurance that you're needing in your current partnership? Um, I feel like there can be so many more shades than that, but those are the first that come to mind. And um, I guess two bits of, I guess, advice come to mind, even though, you know, I mean, I know it's just, this is so complex and I, 
there's so much we don't know about this situation, but one is you ask um, how to view this person as a normal person and coworker. And then like this, it's so like the unknown is so often more scary than the known. And like, this may sound stupidly simple, but have you just like had a conversation with this person? I feel like it may be that this person becomes less of this like looming specter mm-hmm. if you just ask them how their day is and you get to know them a little bit. I think that that if you haven't done that already, that that's something that could have a serious chance of decrease or at least softening the edges around what you're feeling here. And then another a perspective that I want to share from a very, very wise friend of mine that may be helpful. Um, uh, he says, uh, when we like people, it's not just them we are liking. It's often the deposits left by their friends, their families, and let's be honest, their past lovers. But I think that's only something you can appreciate once you're prepared to see the past lovers as part of a rich tapestry rather than as vanquished foes for the hand of Lady Fair. And I think this can be hard, but I think... That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. What a what a wise friend I have. Well done. <laughs> will not be quoted by name, although I asked him if I could quote him. But um, uh, you know who it is. Jesus. Jesus. It's Jesus, you guys. But um, I just think... That's something that I personally have come to find very, find very true over time, that, that in people that I love, like we're, we are shaped by all connections we have, by, by family, by other lovers. And so if there's some way to, like, if that resonates with you, to then see this woman that's your coworker and real, like, like your wife and yeah. she are not together anymore. And to see this person is like, what an amazing contribution that you made to the awesomeness of my current connection. Yeah, she's and part of the reason you love your wife. She's part of the tapestry of who your wife is. Can you read that? I again? think that's mind-bogglingly gorgeous. Can you read it again? Yeah, totally. When we like people, it's not just them that we are liking. It's often the deposits left by their friends, their families, and let's be honest, their past lovers. But I think that's only something you can appreciate once you're prepared to see the past lovers as part of a rich tapestry rather than as vanquished foes for the hands of Lady Fair. I mean, Dave, I know that I am better in every way because of my six-year partnership. Oh, yeah. And there's so many ways that you've influenced me for the better and that I've and have challenged me and inspired me and shaped me. And I'm eternally grateful for that. And I'm I'm sure that people who encounter me now recognize that. Yeah, absolutely. That's that. So this has been sex for smart people. We're done. <laughs> we nailed it. <laughs> That's gorgeous. Wow. Yeah, I'd, I, you know, the thing I would add, or maybe also um, just emphasize of what you just said is that, you know, jealousy often has to do with insecurities, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have learned from another wise friend that I have <laughs> we <all laughs> that when we face insecurities, when there, you know, insecurities, the best way of dealing with them is jumping right in so for Mm. example i am convinced i am not a good dancer and so i've avoided going dancing and you know this i thought you're a fabulous dancer we have danced and so i took that too hard and now i go dancing and i'm still not a good dancer i'm pretty convinced of that but experiencing the joy of it and then also realizing that there are other non-good dancers and (laughs) (laughs) no one cares um has made me go dancing more and enjoying it. Um, not that that is an easy way for jealousy, but I I think what you said, that sometimes the unknown is more threatening than something we know, oh, yeah. is 
it might be true here of maybe not even talking to this person because sometimes this, it can be difficult to um, converge uh, the personal and the professional, right? Like mm -hmm. this is a co-worker. You yes. might not want to like talk about yeah. very personal things, but maybe being present when both of them meet. Mm. You know, it seems like they are still in touch. So maybe... We're not sure. Yeah, but maybe being being a part of their encounters or conversations might might make you realize well they used to be close but this is this is not important in that way any longer for mm -hmm. my partner and so you know getting over your insecurities in that way i don't know mm -hmm. to blend what the wise friend stephanie that you the, the comment that you read and something that you might have it might be a stephanie johnstone original line which is no one person can be enough person for anybody else is that a you original Maybe that phrasing is, but I've certainly read that. Okay. I think that's in Opening Up by Tristan Jarmina. I think that's in several things okay. that I've read. Okay. It's a concept you're, that I you're talk about often. I found it, yeah. Um, which is just, um, yeah, I think that that can be part of remembering. I think that that can be part of this, is the remembering that, um, that, that well, it's, it's, what, it's what your wise friend said, that part of the reason why you love your wife is the contribution that this woman made to your wife's life. Mm -hmm. And that um, if, if you can... Find a way to um, live in that for a moment. Just do it for seven seconds every day, and then see if one day you can move it up to ten. And just say, just say, like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna That's believe, <laughs> I'm gonna believe this fully for seven seconds. That's a and, lovely suggestion. Baby steps. Yeah, and at twelve oh seven, you can punch the wall if you want to. But then, like, maybe on Wednesday, you can do it like till twelve ten. <laughs> okay. Beautiful. Okay. Sweet. On that note. Our last question for today also has to do with how scary the unknown can be. It is. There's I'm a pit under my bed that goes on forever and ever. Oh, God. <laughs> dive into that pit. Just dive into that dancing in that pit. There's a weird... Embrace the pit, dude. There's a weird grunting noise coming from underneath, and somebody is calling my name in a voice that sounds Coach like 17 head on. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the question is, I am in a good open relationship. My biggest fear is my primary partner having a totally unexpected sexual experience that doesn't leave him time to tell me before it's already in full swing. And so what happens is that I find out after it's happened and have to get caught up. Even though I'm sincerely comfortable with my partner having sex with other people, this scenario totally freaks me out. But for him, this kind of unexpected, spontaneous connection is exactly what he craves and finds most exciting and sexy. We both have had really positive experiences with other people, but since it seems like we are in direct conflict in this one specific area, it still causes some friction in our open relationship. Any thoughts? I have some thoughts. Do I, it. I have some thoughts. My thoughts is that um, I think that what might what might work here is that he's got to get over it for now, and you've got to get over it in the long term, and you'll meet in the middle, right? Mm. Something like that, where where you set a rule about. We have to talk seven seconds to ten seconds, so you have to talk some amount of time before a sexual connection happens. And then lessening that a little bit, and then lessening that a little bit, and then you can make out with somebody, but you have to talk to me before before nipples get involved. Like, backing the line down step by step until um, until it, until you find a place that that you're not comfortable with or you find a place where you say this is really where it is mm. and that so in the short term like this kind of 
um, what do you call that when you have to come to agreement about something? Compromise? There you go. This compromise, like finding this compromise, um, may start closer to where, where you are now, but that I think that the generous thing to do is to try moving toward where his preference would be and see if there's a place in the middle that you can meet and both feel fulfilled. Mm. It's my initial response. Mm. Mm -hmm. What's your initial response? Yeah, something uh, similar. Well, my first initial response would also be, you know, if you have your these kind of insecurities, <laughs> jump right in. <laughs> and try it out once and see, you know, it's also, I mean, the question to me sounded a little bit just, it's like uh, something that is hypothetical that hasn't mm -hmm. really happened yet. And but fear maybe of the I'm unknown yeah. yes, It's a yeah. like that to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, another, I mean, I had this experience once um, with a partner where I was really challenged when he went off with his lover for the weekend. And it was just one of the things. I had nothing against his partnership with this person, but being alone kind of being left behind, mm -hmm. that's how it felt, mm -hmm. for the weekend was really challenging for me. And we talked about it, and then the next time this came up, because you could only see that person on the weekend, I think that was the, the problem, um, we made sure that I was also with someone on that weekend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of taken care of, and put this in quotation marks. <laughs> um, and then we did that twice, and after that I was like, you can go off for the weekend, mm -hmm. it will be fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this goes more towards what yet what you said, yeah. you know, about maybe first finding a compromise and maybe that opens up the space to actually let it happen. Yeah. Because it's about trust as well. You yeah. trust that you're not, first of all, you're not going to die. <laughs> uh -huh. And also, I mean, you're surviving this, right? right? And then this other person is still there. Like nothing uh -huh. changed. I think that is often the fear behind it mm -hmm. that when these things happen and you're left out, that things will change. Yeah. And if they haven't tried it, then I really agree. And But I also think, like with the thing about, like, it's okay, Dave, that you may never be into cock and probably are not. And that's, that's totally <laughs> right. okay. And there are people, like, well, I've... I had an awakening to oral sex. Maybe some people are just never going to be into it. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to do with hangups. I think that it's really... That, so you person who, who wrote this question, I think that it's awesome that you're clear about that this particular thing freaks you out. It sounds like there's a lot of other really healthy things about your relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think that because you're committed to each other and trying this stuff out, that to, to give it a shot is probably probably a good move. But especially if you try it and then it really doesn't work for you and you need to have that as a boundary, uh -huh. I think it's also really okay to own that and then and be honest about that. And maybe this is something that will never be okay for you. And then that's something that you can check in with your partner and maybe he won't be okay with that. And if his, if this kind of spontaneous encounter is more important than what you've been building, then that could be an ultimatum. I think more likely it would just be a compromise. Like, yeah. No two people are ever going to be absolutely perfectly compatible. And so I think it's really, it's great to be in dialogue about it. It's great to try it if you mm -hmm. feel like you possibly can. But if you ultimately can't handle it, you ultimately can't handle it. Everybody's lines are different. And um, but the other kind of like middle of the road approach that I am thinking of, mm -hmm. which this may, this may totally not work for you because it impo involves some planning and maybe that's what, what takes all the excitement out of it for him in mm -hmm. the first place. But if you're not if you've tried it and are not uncomfortable with it, or you're not even uncomfortable with trying it, um, what about 
crafting it as a date between the two of you. This is mm -hmm. if you if you're feeling creative. What if you cultivate some alternate persona? You go to a party or an event or a bar separately, and then he picks you up, but you're some different person. I guess it takes some some openness to to serious theatricality and role playing. But um, if that's something that sounds potentially fun for you, that could be some way for for your partner to experience huh. at least something of what's fun for him. Sounds kind of zesty. With that, I mean, it sounds to me that I mean that sounds fun to me, but. Um, I feel like if you try that, it might demystify something around all of this, and also it might, it might just be fun regardless, whatever it opens up for this. So maybe it can't hurt. Sure. Um, and I feel like the more, like I'm, I'm a fan of. If you're gonna do something, really fucking do it. Like, if you're gonna try this particular experiment, like find a way that it's really fun for you and go all in, like yeah. totally clothes, clothes that you would never wear, and like what persona are you just dying to try on? And Switch then be that personas. For well, for a night. <laughs> for a you night. know what we once did? Um, I agree. That's a smart advice. Yes. Friends of mine um, wanted to have some kind of like blind, um, set up blind date. I'm putting this in quotation mm -hmm. marks. So they also wanted to just pretend not knowing each other. And we knew that he loves, oh, that sounds a little weird, but he loves pregnant women. That is just like one thing he the huge turn on for him. Yes, mm -hmm. so we dressed her up as pregnant. <laughs> Rad. And it was yeah, a big success. Oh, <laughs> so you know maybe even something that you know is gonna spark get your friends his, involved. Spark yeah. his fantasy yeah. imagination. Yes. Uh -huh. Or I actually when I was listening to it, I was thinking maybe also doing this together, um, of picking. By picking someone up, the two of you together, <laughs> oh, making it, having a spontaneous uh, connection yes. with the both of you. Yes, oh. three some or four some. I don't know. Mm. Okay, yeah. but yeah, that's a lovely idea. Now we are entering fantasy land. <laughs> <laughs> but also, um, something that I feel like is another thing we come back to here often is like, or we did it in the question about the 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 woman who is jealous of her of her wife's ex partner, which is, um. Try to figure out what about it is worrisome. Is it the mm -hmm. worry that he's going to fall desperately in love and come back? Is it a sex safety worry? Is it a transmission issue? Like, like try to figure out what it is and then see if, if there's actually a smaller thing that you can mitigate that's not the big thing of instant sexual connection. Um, you know, do some, do some investigation in your own brain about what it is that's causing you the concern. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, well, I'm looking at the word um, that, you know, the frightening thing is to get caught up. So I see a little bit in the question that yeah. the issue might be to be left out. I mm -hmm. think that, you know, not being in the picture while it's happening and then, you know, having to know about it after feels like this person had this intense, beautiful experience while I was sleeping. Mm. Or you know, it's I kind of can relate to that. Sure. That yeah. that being something that feels very challenging hmm. to see the least. But yeah. yeah, invest in Google Glass. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do not recommend that. <laughs> so on to quickies. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm going to lead off, and I apologize in advance. And then I will apologize afterward, but uh, this week I read the book Twilight by the author Stephanie Meyer. I'm so sorry. There's a... Re okay, so I'm in... Okay. I'm in a bad book marginalia 
swap club where five of us are reading bad books and then e and then mailing it to the next person. And so in five months, I will get this book back with five people having taken notes in it. Why? Why is that possibly a good use of your time? So, so I will have read five bad books and taken it. So I'll be the. So I will. Have no, but seriously. Okay. Okay, okay. The, the author Sam Anderson read the most recent Dan Brown novel and took notes in it and talked about how much... And so in one of the things he did was he circled every time Dan Brown used an ellipsis. And so they're just pages circled and... and okay, okay then. Um, And then he gave it to his friend David Reese, who is the guy who made Get Your War On, the comic, and who is now the artisanal pencil sharpener. And so they posted pictures of pages from this book on the millions and then I got the meta filter and then people on meta filter started this bad book marginalia swap club. And so I read this book and um, I feel like I went into it with an open mind as and this book is fucking terrible it's really 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 bad and it's bad for reasons that I didn't expect it to be bad mm. I thought that the that the writing would be workmanlike whatever but there's but the main male character in this book is a psychopathic asshole controlling jackass piece of shit motherfucker and he is addressed the entire time as the sexiest person who ever lived and young women are swooning for him I everywhere know. and it the, so whatever again there can be room in fantasy and in literature for transgressing i'm totally into that but there's a part in this book when it went from being dumb to being dangerous and that is a scene where the main female character, who is the, the first-person perspective character, is in an unfamiliar town, and she is being uh, kettled by four dudes on the street in an unfamiliar part of town, in like the industrial part of town. They're trying to get to the place where they can where they can attack her. Her magic boyfriend pulls up in a car, and she dives in, and he's so upset that the first thing he says is, Talk to me about everything. I'm so upset. I don't know if I can handle the fact that you were in this danger. And she entirely puts herself into making sure that he's calm God. about the fact that he picked her up from nearly oh being attacked. And never, never once in her first person perspective goes, Hey, buddy, maybe ask about me because I nearly died. <laughs> wow, yeah. And he, it's shown as the paragon of strength and masculinity that he rescued her and then had to have her comfort him from his anger at having to rescue her. Oh, that so angry. That it's, makes me so deeply angry. I know. Angry. I know. I cannot read this I know, book. I no, not, I it's the read. worst. Okay, so that's true, and also, it doesn't have a fucking plot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you haven't read Twilight, don't. Moving on. Moving on. Me next, or you? <laughs> no, you next. I want to... I want to quickly grab a book because sure. I, while you were doing it, yeah. I was thinking of um, So my quickie is something that actually a, a mutual friend of Antonia and mine, Reed Mihelko, has said. Um, and something in his workshop, um, Energetic Sex for Pragmatists, <laughs> <laughs> which is an online workshop that you can buy. That is, is he um, an ESFP? Just wondering, is Myers-Briggs personality, is he ESFP? I'm a little he out of touch be. with that. Okay. But... Um, <laughs> But uh, in uh, one of the things that he says in this workshop, which is trying to kind of like demystify the woo in, in practical terms and be able to speak in language that can appeal to those who totally go with the woo and those who do not. Yeah. And I guess I fall a little in between those camps. But um, uh, some, one thing that just really stuck with me from this workshop was um, he was saying you know the things, we have wine glasses, and Antonio was just doing this, which made me so, and 
um, when you're rubbing your finger on the edge of a wine glass and you're like trying to make a sound and there's a part of you that is listening for that sound. So everybody, listeners, right now, think about putting your finger around the edge of a wine glass and trying to make a sound and feel in your body where you're listening from. And don't, you don't have to give it a name, but um, where you're listening from. Can you listen from that place when relating to people, whether sexually or not? And that's my favorite because I, I don't, I'm not, I'm pretty skeptical and I'm really interested in talking about energy and, and I think that, that totally rational articulations of things or like just being brain-based are, it doesn't quite do it for me and yet I'm like, I'm super skeptical of the woo, but that articulation of like, can you listen from the wine glass sound listening place to me is the best articulation of how to be present with more than just the rational in a way that really lands with me. And yeah, I think that also in sex, that can be really great, great, great advice to to listen from that place wherever that resonates in you. Sure. So thank you, Reed Mihalko of readaboutsex.com. Yes. Agreed. All right. Um, on to me. While you were talking and ranting about a book, I remembered that I just picked up a book that I just love and want to recommend. Um, it is called Salam Love, American Muslim Men on Love, Sex and Intimacy. Mm. It just came out. Um, and it. I started reading it and it is really a beautiful collection of very personal stories but written by Muslim men on these topics. And I am amazed how open and frank they are how deep you know these men led you into their lives but also how religion and faith play a role in in these issues for these men what i am not familiar with much in my life at all um there is spirituality a lot um around me um when it comes to love sex and intimacy but not faith as in an organized religion that follows certain rules and books mm -hmm. and how they describe how in a very personal way and not at all in an oppressive way I feel you know like often I don't know when I think about religion and sex especially in this country um, you think about how it is oppressive or yeah. repressive of certain expressions and identities and how they have integrated them both into something that is very beautiful and deep. So, and it comes from all kinds of perspectives. Some are very um, conservative and almost fundamentalist, and some are um, hardly connected to their religion, but it, it still is part of their community's um, life. So I can recommend that highly. What's the book again? What's the author? The, uh, it's edited by Isha Matu and Nora Masani. Uh, Masnavi, I'm sorry, and um, it is actually a follow-up of the book Love, Inshallah, The Secret Love Lives of American Muslim Women. So that might be something oh, that people have heard about. And they actually describe in the introduction how they were um, contacted by Muslim men after the book came out and were like, where are we? Mm. <laughs> and that they have thought about it hard um, that if they would want to give men 
this kind of space. Right. Because obviously there is some mm -hmm. gender dynamic here as well. Um, especially when it comes to religion and sexuality. But um, reading this collection, I think um, it was totally worth it. True. Collect the stories by men as well. Hmm. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Sex for Smart People. Thanks again to Antonia for joining us. That was super awesome. Special extra thanks to our amazing mix engineer, Owen O'Malley, and to our tech guru, Drew Hornbean, yes. for helping us out just unbelievably, the both of them, making this thing listenable and mm -hmm. accessible on the internets in every way. Mm -hmm. You dudes are good dudes. Indeed. And we've gotten a lot of feedback about how much people dig the quickies section. And so, since the people have spoken, we are going to do for our next episode, episode 10, all quickies, all the time. Woohoo! We're going to gather together in an awesome bunch. Uh, joining us will be Salty Brine, amazing performance artist. You may remember him from the launch party and episode one. Also, Ajwa Tete, activist and sex educator who joined us on episode four. And Avital Isaacs, who's a sex educator who works at Babeland in New York City. Um, so we're really excited to try this out. We might do this every 10 episodes or so if, if it works well, but I think it's going to be a really good time. Yeah, so find us on the internet, ask us things, tell us things, talk to each other about things, and we'll catch you next time and on... subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't already. Oh yeah, but that goes without saying. Why aren't you subscribed on iTunes yet? Subscribe <laughs> on iTunes! Get it! Do it! Do it! iTunes, click the thing, and then go to the other thing and click it. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Accept the terms and conditions, whatever they are, just accept them. <laughs> Dave Subscribe. Says. Dave says. <laughs> it's great. Anyhow. Bow to corporate America. We love you. We Bye. love you. Bye. Idris Elba is the sexiest. That is fucking true. <laughs> Smart and deep conversations are the sexiest. J.K. Rowling is the sexiest. <laughs>